Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Morah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut through enough wood for the burnt offering, he sent out for the place of God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they had reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He had bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took his knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord came out from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not lay anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up in the thick thicket and saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of, the, of their enemies and their offspring of all nations and earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Let me add my welcome to Rowena's, and uh, good to have you here with us tonight, and uh, as we celebrate a great day, a happy Mother's Day to the mothers in the room. It's a great day to honour the woman that, in our life that gave birth to us and sacrificed so many hours for us. But the beautiful thing about being a Christian is you not only, on a day like today, honour your biological mum, but also the spiritual mums in our life, those women who have raised us, who have shaped us, who have been with us, showing us Jesus the highs and lows. And so we want to honour those women there in our, in our church family and uh, in our spiritual family. But all that being said, this is not a Mother's Day sermon, right? Genesis 22 is not the first passage you'd pick on Mother's Day. We're in a series of Genesis, the master storytellers, what we've called it. And it's not, it may not be masterful timing, but it is the story that we find ourselves in today. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into it. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for your word. We know it's good, but at times it can be confusing. At times we can be scratching our heads. What is happening here? And so we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would show us what this story has to say to the story, your story, and indeed how it touches ours. Amen. I'm going to begin by talking about my nunna. Now, if you don't know what nunna is, uh, I, uh, my background's Maltese, which is an island of Italy, small island there, and my nunna is my grandma, my Maltese grandma. Rita Galea was her name, and she's about this tall and very loud, and uh, she, you know, she is just a beautiful woman. She passed a number of years ago, and a great cook, and I remember sitting at her table, you know, we had the pastizzis, the argine, you know, the brodo, all the Maltese delicacies, and, uh, you know, she's the kind of woman that you walk in the door and she says, ah, James, you've put on weight, right? And that's a compliment, right, that she just loves to feed and feed. And I remember sitting at the table once with her. I said, Nanna, over the course of your life, like, what's been one of the hardest things that you had to deal with, right? Well, what's been real trying time? And she told how when she was 18 in Malta, my Nanna, her, her now husband, sometimes uh, they got married, and at 18... She left all her family. She had 14 brothers and sisters, right? Left all them, her parents, and hopped on a boat, came all the way to the other side of the country, uh, so the world here in Australia, to set up a new life. She knew barely any English. Her accent was thick, right? She, she did sound a bit like Borat, right? Sort of that multi, it's very rough, right? And so every time she went to the shops, it would be a struggle to try and buy food. She'd get teased and mocked. She, every time she'd try and do something, she would just, it was painstakingly hard as they set up this little market garden farm in Western Sydney. But the hardest time, she said, was when, not, after that, not long after that, she fell pregnant and gave birth to her first child, Mary, she called it. But she gave birth and they took the baby straight out of the room. And they came back and said, oh, the baby has died. In her broken English, she wanted to see the baby. She said, no, no, you're not seeing it. It wasn't uncommon in that day for immigrants to be taking their baby away and given elsewhere. She had so little English, so little power, she was told, it's dead, go home. That, through tears, that was the trying, most testing point of her life. Now, I don't have anything close to that. And a number of us, we don't have anything close to that. But in the course of your life, right, there will be something that you can point to and say, that was the hardest point of my life. That pushed me. That tested me. If you sat down with Abraham, right, and asked him, Abraham, the course of your long life, what is the thing that really pushed you? What was the thing that really tried? What, what was that test, right? He could have pointed to leaving family and friends from Ur and Chaldeans moving to a place he didn't know. He could have talked about the long infertility that he and his wife battled through. But I think he would point to Genesis chapter 22 and say there, this story was the time that pushed me to the limits. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, if you've got it open, if you've got it closed. Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. And let's start with those first six words as the story begins, some time later, God tested Abraham. 
Now, God loves his people, right? We're to come as we are. And we saw that in the beginning of looking at Abraham, right? This Iraqi pagan pensioner, right? Out of nowhere, God just blesses him with abundance in this promise. We come as we are and experience grace. But yet God doesn't want us to stay as we are. There's these people who wants to grow us, to shape us. And he does that primarily through testing. Because the test exposes, it reveals what's happening. It's like if someone gave you a gold ring, right? And said, this is a 24-carat gold ring, right? You hold that, right? It is by faith that you think, yep, there's 24 carats in it. You know how you'd know? Put it through the fire. And that will expose what is real and what is fake. And you will go through seasons of life that are through the fire moments, right? That will test and expose the faith that you have and what is real and what is not. Abraham had experienced blessing after blessing after blessing. He, at this stage, was a very wealthy man. And the question that probably Abraham's wrestling with, does, God, does Abraham want God or just what God has given him? Has Abraham's faith been motivated by personal gain or because of his love of God? And it's a question that we wrestle with sometimes, isn't it? You know, am I a Christian because of just the blessings that Christ has given me? You know, my family, my comfort, the house, whatever it is. Or am I a Christian because I actually genuinely love Christ and want to follow him? It's like I've watched a documentary about a whole bunch of uh, rich kids, right? Kids whose uh, parents were billionaires or multimillionaires. And they were telling their story of what it's like to be in this situation. And all of them wrestled with this one doubt. Are my friends my friends because they want to be friends with me or because of how much I own? And there was one uh, adult, one kid, who lost all of it. With losing all that money, he lost all his friends except one. And he knew he didn't want me because of what's in my bank account. He wanted me. Now, here's the thing. As a reader, we know that Genesis 22 is a test, but you know who doesn't? Abraham. He has no idea that this is a test. And the same for you and I, right? We will go through life without a narrator telling us, by the way, God is testing you, right? It's silence. We don't know. We will go through moments where God will bring tests into our life. And he's doing it to reveal, right? Because faith is not my sight. But he will reveal and expose our actions, what we do, our deeds. And that is we can see. And that in turn affirms the faith that we have. You know, we'll do a whole bunch of things here at church to help you grow as a disciple of Christ. We'll give you sermon series booklets, right, with uh, readings to do in your quiet times. We encourage you, join a connect group, grow with people, come to central prayer, grow in your prayer life. But you know what we won't offer you to help you grow in your Christian walk? Trials, right? There's no page on our website of how to start a trial in your life, right? That's not our responsibility. God will do that, right? That's his job. And he will do it. Sometimes push you out of your comfort zones for you to know that your faith that you have in him is genuine. That at the end of the day, for you to know Christ is enough.
But the test that Abraham is about to experience is like no other. In fact, it is profoundly unique. Have a look, verse 2. God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. I mean, I remember reading this story in the kids' Bible to my kids one night, and it dawned on me, do I actually believe this? Do I want my kids knowing this? What is God getting him to do? I mean, this is barbaric, isn't it? If you go up in church, you can get a bit used to it. You think about that. That is, that's hot. Take your one and and sacrifice him in a burnt offering? What the heck? You know, it's interesting, right? Our reaction, be thinking about this. Our reaction to this is quite strong, right? If you're not sort of a bit put off by this, maybe you didn't hear that right. But it's interesting, our reaction is not Abraham's reaction. We're shocked at the morality of this, right? How can you get someone to sacrifice a one and only son? We're shocked by the morality of this. But Abraham's not, right? What you've got to understand is in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was the norm for human sacrifice. In Mesopotamia, in the land of Canaan, where they were, it was not an unusual thing for the deity that they worshipped to demand a sacrifice. And that generally was a human, a child. So when Abraham hears this request, he's thinking, well, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is probably like all the other gods in the area. It was a normal thing to do. Now, he may have felt like, oh, it's a bit uncomfortable, but everyone else is doing it. He didn't bat an eyelid. The question is, why do we? But why do we find this so, ugh, It's because, ironically, of what the God of the Bible said in a couple of books later. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31 says this, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, that's other cultures, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kind of detestable thing the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. The reason we have a visceral reaction in the end is because God does. He hates it and is not for it. But Abraham doesn't know this. This is written after Abraham's time. We have been shaped by the God of the Bible in a whole bunch of ways, and this is one of them. For Abraham, it's not a morality issue. It's a personal one. In verse 2, where it says, Take your son, your only son, who you love, Isaac, God here is emphasizing the cost for Abraham. Now, it's interesting. Ishmael was his other son, but he's gone off out into the desert. This is the only son he's got left. And he was the first one. The, the ultimate hope of the family was placed in the firstborn. The social standing, the stability was placed, in, and he's going to go. And not only that, but Isaac was the promised one, the hope of blessing to be a great nation. But notice the word love, whom you love. This is the first time the word love is used in the Bible, here. 
that parental ache, that he loved him. He saw him being born. He raised him. He kicked the ball with him. He saw him grew up. This is his son. He loves him. I mean, Isaac means laughter, and the amount of joy that his son has brought him is immense. But notice God asks him to sacrifice him. It doesn't ask him just to kill him or wipe him out. No, no, to sacrifice him. In other words, there's a purpose behind this that Abraham doesn't really know. He knows he's done a whole bunch of wrong things, right? We saw that last week. Abraham has done a whole bunch of horrible things in his life, right? Sins that are immense. And perhaps he's thinking, maybe this is the price I need to pay for those sins. I have known God, but done horrible things against God, against my wife, against others. Perhaps this is the sacrifice needed to make it right. Verse 3, Abraham does what God asks him. He gets up early, gets his son Isaac, gets some wood, gets a knife, and goes off. Now, you may think this may be a split decision. But notice verse 4, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place. He doesn't get cold feet. You know, three days he is walking with his son next to him. He could have turned around at any moment, but three days he's walking. And you can just imagine what's going on in his head. You know, God's promised this child, and it seems to be going in reverse. We waited so many years for this son, and he's here, and God wants to sacrifice him? Who is this God? Why would he do it? At the end of the day, friends, Abraham didn't trust his feelings. He didn't trust other people. You know what he trusted in? He trusted completely in God. He looked at God's track record. He had seen his wife of 90 years old give birth to his son Isaac. That was a miracle. He trusted in God was that if God can do the impossible at the beginning of Isaac's life, then perhaps he will do it at the end of his life in raising him from the dead. You know how we know that? Have a look, verse 5. He said to the servants, stay here while the, with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. In Hebrews 11, it picks this up. Verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. His faith is in God. Even if I go through with it, God is powerful enough to bring my son, my one other son, back from the dead. On holidays a couple of weeks ago, um, I took, got some bikes and went bike riding up and down the streets up in Sunshine Coast. And uh, I was cycling with my daughter, Grace. And uh, she, as we are cycling, she loved hearing stories. She said, Dad, Dad, can you tell me a story about the olden days? I'm like, oh, great, you know, First Fleet, Roman Empire. She's like, no, 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 when you were a kid, right? Tell me a story about the olden days. Like, okay. And I just loved hearing stories of what life was like growing up. And you can imagine, right, for Isaac, right, when he's grown up, I mean, he had two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And you can just imagine them saying, Dad, Dad, Isaac, tell us stories about the olden days, right? Tell us the story about when Grandpa Abraham was going to kill you with a knife, right? Tell that one again. What was that like? 
And you just imagine going along, you know, you know was Grandpa Abraham really going to stab you with a knife? He said, well, well, he would have if God wanted him to. Well, well, did God want him to? Good question. God really wanted Grandpa Abraham to trust him. That's what he really wanted. You know, it's not only Abraham who had faith and trusted God. Isaac did too. Isaac, he ain't a baby at this point. No, no. He's about a teenager, about a 15-year-old. And if anyone in this room has ever had a 15-year-old boy, right, you know one thing. You can only get them to do, in the end, what they want to do, right? If they clean their room, they put on deodorant, these things are minor miracles, right, in some households. Abraham could not have offered Isaac unless he fully cooperated. I mean, you think about it. Abraham's about 100. Isaac's 15. Who's the strongest out of the two? Who's the fastest? It is clearly Isaac. And here this teenage son, for three days, carried the wood on his back with his dad, full of questions. Verse 7, Dad, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb? Presumably they would have done this sacrifice a number of times, right? And Abraham says, verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb. And the two went on together. Abraham had faith, but Isaac did too. You, you do not think, I mean, that Isaac is probably realizing with each day, I, I think I'm the lamb. I, I think I'm the one going on this altar. And yet he didn't run back to his room and hide beneath the sheets. They went on together. And so they came to that mountain and they walked up, the father and son, up this mountain. And they got to the point where God had told them to go. And they got stone, 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 and built that altar. And then they placed the wood from Isaac's back onto it. And they got the rope and Abraham took the rope and he grabbed his son's hand and he tied his hand and then he tied his feet and they placed Isaac onto that altar. And as Isaac lay there silent, he could have screamed, and he lay there silently looking up at his dad, his dad that he loved, a dad has been there for him, a dad that he respected and honored. And then as Abraham held that knife, he looked out at his son through the sweat and the tears in his son's eyes, his beloved son, the son that he loved, the son that was the hope for him and the blessings. And the knife that he held in his hand was about to come down when, Stop! Stop! God said, Do not harm him. Don't lay a finger on him. Relief. Imagine what Abraham's seeing at that moment. The, the, the knife just comes down to the wayside. Oh, he quickly unties his son and gives him the biggest hug, a hug that they will remember forever. 
God is adamant. Don't touch him. Don't lay a finger. And in that moment, Abraham knew God never wanted for this to happen. Verse 12. Now I know, Abraham, that you fear God, because you have not withheld your son, your only son. You might be thinking, hang on. If God is all-knowing, didn't you already know this? Yes, but he wanted Abraham to know it. And this test exposed that his faith in God, his trust in God, was real. As someone said, the test isn't filling in a gap in God's understanding. It's filling in a gap in Abraham's faith. But there was, another, well, there was to be a sacrifice that day. Because as they embrace one another, Abraham sees in the corner of his eye a ram, a sheep stuck in the thorns. They take that sheep and they sacrifice that. God indeed would provide. Instead of his one and only son, a sheep would take the place. That would be the replacement, the substitute. Because the Lord did provide. And so much so that the mountain gets a remake, a rename. They call the place, verse 14, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is called, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now you've got to admit, friends, that's a story, isn't it? I mean, that is a story. But the problem is, what do you do with a story like that? You will run into all sorts of problems if you think that this book, the Bible, is just God's instruction manual for life, a how-to guide. Because if you think just that, when you come to Genesis 22, you say, well, it says, sacrifice your son. Should I go do it likewise? All of a sudden, you get worried about father-son time, right? If the moral of the story is perfectly obey like Abraham did, regardless of how moral crazy it is, you kind of get nervous, right? A better question is this. What do you see when you look at this story? You know, Jesus in John 8 said that Abraham saw something. It says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, Jesus' day. He saw it and was glad. He saw something in this. I wonder if you see it. See, Abraham said the Lord will provide. And that is true. There was no personal cost to him whatsoever. Not only his son wasn't provided, he didn't even provide the lamb. It was just there. The Lord truly provided. But he didn't realize how true a statement that would be. Because one dark Friday, God would. For upon that same mountain, a father and the son, so to speak, went up into that mountain. There with the son, the only son, carrying wood on his back, this time in the form of a cross. To be sacrificed. Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, brought into the world to bring hope, placed on an altar of the cross. But there would be no substitute for him. He was the Lamb of God. He was the one the Lord would provide. And Jesus Christ willingly went to that altar. He was silent. He was bound pinned to that cross in perfect obedience to his Father. And at that cross, the Son looked up at his Father 
with tears and sweat. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone? What are you doing? And as the father looked down at his son with a sort of judgment upon his loved son, his only begotten son, the son that he spent all eternity with, the son that he cherished, his very own, he looked down on his son who took on the sin of the world. And there the knife came, but it did not stop, but fully came on the cross, poured out in Jesus Christ. God said no to Abraham's son. But when it came to his one and only son, he said yes. God, in showing his love, made the choice to spare you at the expense of his son. Because nothing that Abraham could have offered on that altar, nothing that you could offer on that altar, even the most precious things could atone for our sins, forgive our sins in any way, shape or form, the Lord himself would provide the perfect sacrifice once and for all. And he did it for you. We feel a shock, a good right shock to the core when you read this story. And it's there for one reason. What God asked Abraham to do theoretically, God did himself in reality. So that when you come across verses like John 3.16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that they wouldn't just be words, but you empathize with what Abraham has gone through and gives you a taste of what God himself went through for you. When you hear this story, friends, it is not a story of what to do next. No, 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 it's what did you see. Because tests always reveal. They revealed Abraham's faithful obedience, point to the ultimate obedience as the son obeyed his father, who experienced radical love for you. So that when you go through your tests, that won't be anywhere near Abraham's test. But we will ask, what are you doing, God? Why? It feels wrong. It shouldn't be like this. When you find yourself in chapters of your life that you do not want to be in, know this, you are part of a bigger one. And the question is, will you trust God? Because he's a God who tests, yes, but he's the God who provides. And the only way you know it is to see what Abraham saw. You know, if Abraham was at the cross looking up at Jesus Christ, you know what he would say? Ah, now I see that the Lord truly has provided. Now I know that he loves me. He has dealt with my sin. He did not withhold his son from me. That provision will get you through any test. As Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we cannot hear it too much. We cannot believe it too deeply. We cannot rejoice in it too fully. But by your death on that cross, you truly have taken away our sins once and for all. You are the lamb. You are the substitute. You lay on that altar the cross for us. And as we look at Abraham's obedience, it is remarkable. It is astonishing. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, he was a man of faith. 
but it points to your ultimate obedience, Lord Jesus, that we know without a shadow of a doubt what you did on that cross shows that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love us. And so when tests come, small or big, and we ask why, 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 we know that you are revealing to us the knowledge and the affirmation that our faith is not dead, it is alive. And that we trust that you are the God who tests, yes, but you are the God who has and will provide. As we pray in your life-giving name, Jesus.